It's Thursday, the 24th of August. In this episode of Going Viral, Professor Nancy Baxter gives us an overview on new variants, immunity, antivirals, and how to track without waiting for hospitalization. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm happy to be speaking to you today about uh, uh, COVID to give you a COVID update. Uh, I'm coming to you uh, from the lands of the Wurundjeri people who have been custodians of these lands and waterways of Australia for thousands of years. And I pay respects to elders uh, past and present. Uh, And I uh, especially uh, acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people watching today. Well, um, we have good news for a change. Um, so this, uh, these graphs look at uh, COVID-19 associated deaths and hospitalizations um, tracking over time. And what we see uh, is currently we are at the lowest level um, since the start of the Omicron outbreak. So essentially still, since we've had widespread transmission in Australia, we are at the lowest number of deaths and the lowest number of hospitalizations per week. Um, so this is excellent news. Uh, we did have a wave uh, in uh, winter wave, uh, which was an XBB wave, um, but we currently are on the other end of that. And probably with the least amount of circulating COVID um, than at any point since uh, December of uh, 2021. Uh, so good news. Um, but uh, as uh, we uh, always have to realize with COVID, um, that uh, that a decrease in transmission is uh, almost certainly followed by increases in transmission as our immunity wanes. Uh, we now have new variants, uh, and I'm going to talk to you about a couple uh, that seem to be um, raising, rising to the level uh, of concern. So this graph shows variant tracing um, over time in New South Wales. Uh, And what we can see is earlier in the year, we had predominantly uh, BA uh, 4 and 5. So those are in those lighter colors. Uh, And then we had the XBB. So those um, are recombinant uh, from BA 2 variants that became dominant. And basically your BA 4s and 5s disappeared. Um, Now what we're seeing is the emergence of um, uh, a new variant. Variant, uh, called Iris, or colloquially called uh, Iris, which is starting to be seen in the Australian uh, population, uh, started in May and has now been being seen uh, in larger uh, proportions of the population. So what is this, the Iris variant? It's, it's called EG5, and it actually comes from XBB, so it's an a, a evolution from uh, an XBB variant, which is related to BA2. Um, and it's now considered a variant of interest by the WHO because it seems to be driving transmission. So it seems to be more transmissible um, uh, uh, than, um, than the current XBBs that were in circulation. Uh, there's also a related subvariant called FL.1.5. So one of these is likely to become um, uh, dominant over the other, but both are really the dominant subvariants now in the United States. And um, they relate to a mutation in the spike, which is called the FLIP mutation, which basically changes an amino acid uh, within the spike in a you know, specific area that does uh, seem to be uh, associated with increased attachment. 
Um, now, its moderate growth advantage has resulted in the United States in a fairly dramatic increase in cases. So cases in the United States were at their lowest level um, since, since almost the beginning of the pandemic uh, in um, uh, May, June, uh, and starting the early July. Um, but since that time, we've seen a pretty a rapid uptake uh, in the number of hospitalizations due largely to IRIS and FL 1.5. Um, there doesn't appear to be an increased virulence, um, but because there's more COVID in circulation, you have more people in hospital. Um, so an important variant in the United States. It's unclear what the impact in Australia is going to be because um, we have uh, different risks in terms of um, a transmission because we have uh, different immunity. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, our last outbreak was XBB. The last big outbreak in the United States was BA4 and 5. So we may actually, in Australia, have more, um, more immunity to EG5, to Iris, uh, than they do in the United States, where there hasn't been as much exposure to XBB. Um, so uh, in the current era, it's difficult to predict which variants are going to become dominant and drive waves, uh, because it does depend on, uh, on the actual immunity of the, um, of the country, which, which does differ. Uh, in any event, uh, the Iris variants do not appear to be game changers, either in the United States or in Australia, um, but are having an impact because of this increased transmissibility in a, um, in a population that uh, had waning immunity uh, as they've kind of had some time period uh, without a spike in, in COVID. Um, but uh, this differs than the newest kid on the block, which is BA 2.86. Uh, and I must say, uh, I have not seen as much um, chatter uh, on Twitter or uh, in the press about a very new variant, uh, essentially since Omicron. Um, so what is this? So this is a new variant that seems to come from a much, um, a much further up the evolutionary tree um, in Omicron. It's still an Omicron variant, but it seems to have come from a much earlier variant of BA. Um, so it comes from a variant of BA.2, seems to evolve from a variant of BA.2 um, that was in circulation in, in mid-2022, uh, so almost a year ago. So it kind of has come out of the blue, likely has come from a patient who was uh, immunocompromised and had, uh, had COVID for a long period of time and developed this new variant. Um, there are six cases, only six cases that have been typed so far uh, of this variant, uh, and um, yet there's a lot of concern. So why is there so much concern? Well, the new variant has a large number of mutations. So over 30 mutations, new mutations from its, uh, its original strain that it came from. Um, and some of these are concerning in terms of potential for virulence, um, um, so may mean that this is a worse actor, although that certainly is not known. Additionally, you, these, although you only have six cases, the cases have been identified in four countries, indicating there's international spread. When you compare the, um, the sequences of the cases, uh, they're very similar, which indicates that there has not been a lot of time between um, transmission uh, of these um, of these 
uh, of the virus um, so that the transmission has been very rapid. So there hasn't been enough time for there to be any genetic drift uh, uh, between transmissions. So very rapid uh, growth, uh, uh, a recent emergence, and international transmission. So that's why people are really, really concerned. Additionally, there's been no travel history and no contact between the individuals who have uh, contracted this variant, indicating that there's community spread in all four countries. Um, it uh, has derived from a BA2 that stopped circulating in July 2022. 20, uh, um, so a very, very historic uh, um, uh, origin. Uh, which indicates it's likely uh, emerged from an individual who was immunocompromised, who harbored the virus for a long time, allowing there to be many, um, uh, many mutations that have developed. And this has been the source of uh, the new variants that have been in circulation in the past. Now, most of these new variants just die out because they don't have ability to have increased transmission. So this may happen with this variant as well. Uh, but again, the reason that folks are so concerned is because so many new mutations and the fact that there's been fairly rapid transmission means that this one may well uh, be um, the newest variant to be concerned about. It's already designated a variant uh, under monitoring for, by the WHO, so that's very rapid for a variant, um, but really we don't know the risk at this point. Um, so this is just something to watch out for, and it's certainly there's a lot of chatter about this right now. Well, let's talk about immunity. Let's talk about uh, vaccines, boosters, and hybrid immunity. So ATAGI guidance, unchanged since February 2023 in terms of boosters. Boosters are recommended six months after last dose or, or uh, infection for immunocompromised adults and uh, people over age 65. Um, it's important to not focus really on the number of doses that someone's had, but to focus on the amount of time since their last dose, because that really is what's important in terms of driving outcomes. Um, currently, younger adults and immunocompromised children 5 to 18, um, the recommendation is to consider a booster but not to recommend a booster without, uh, without discussion about the pros and cons, and boosters are not recommended currently for children otherwise. Currently, the bivalent booster is preferred, uh, and right now we have uh, Pfizer um, bivalent with BA1 and uh, also a Pfizer with BA45, as well as Moderna BA1 and Moderna BA45. Um, uh, although we continue to have monovalent um, uh, boosters available, um, definitely you should be focusing on uh, the uh, BA45 uh, uh, for the Moderna and Pfizer. Currently for Novavax, we have monovalent only. So if your patients want that, um, there is only monovalent available. Um, the sad thing is, although we have uh, the boosters and we have the boosters for BA4-5, which does have uh, some similarity to XBB uh, and does have a benefit, uh, we know that the majority of people have not taken up the opportunity to be boosted within the last six months, so have not been consistent with what would be guidelines. Um, so overall, only 18.5% of uh, Australians currently have been vaccinated within the past six months, leaving a large pool of individuals at increased risk of uh, hospitalization and death, potentially, although their risk is low. 
Um, and importantly, really importantly, is the uptake is less than 50% in those over age 65. Now, we don't know uh, when these people had uh, or if these people have had uh, an infection within the past six months. So this is an underestimate of the number of people who are protected currently in Australia. But still, um, this is considerably less than would be optimal, particularly when we may face be facing variants uh, that may have an impact on um, on um, serious outcomes of COVID in the future. So we're really not as well prepared as we could be. Now, um, is it worth getting boosted? And I, I think that we are having more and more information about the impact of the bivalent booster and the bivalent booster's effectiveness within the XBB era. So this is US data um, that uh, looked at um, the vaccine effectiveness, uh, comparing monovalent and bivalent booster doses um, against hospitalization and critical illness. So this looks during uh, two periods of time. Um, so I'll show you first during when BA4-5 was predominant in the US and now subsequently when XBB has been predominant. Um, so what you can see from this is that um, overall uh, your bivalent boosters in the BA4-5 uh, era um, did did substantially boost transmission. You had some waning over time. So as time increased since the bivalent booster, your uh, the effectiveness against hospitalization and critical illness did decline, but still robust uh, and relatively low risk of these outcomes happening. Now, when you look during the XBB predominant era, um, what you can see is that um, you actually had um, impact of the, um, of the bivalent, so the bivalent, remember, at that time period would have been either for BA1 or BA4-5. Uh, and so the bivalent booster did appear to be effective early on within 90 days, but you had a fairly dramatic uh, decrease in effectiveness for hospitalization, although um, still stable and good, uh, good protection against critical illness. So the BA4-5 uh, vaccine, still appears to give benefit to people, even in the XBB era. Um, the, effect of, the effect is, is somewhat less for hospitalizations um, than uh, for previous Omicron variants, um, but still um, an effect uh, and a more prolonged effect for, uh, for a, a critical illness. Um, so still important and still an important tool for us in terms of controlling, um, uh, controlling uh, COVID at this time point in Australia. Now, importantly, uh, when one looks at the immunocompromised adults, you can see that there's diminished impact. So the impact of uh, the bivalent booster is uh, lower uh, and for hospitalization, um, and um, you do see a drop-off over time. It's still better to have the bivalent booster. It's still better to have a booster than to not have a booster, but the effectiveness is lower than in non-immunocompromised individuals. Um, fortunately, it is still uh, it is still fairly robust for uh, critical illness. So again, still very important for immunocompromised adults to get boosted uh, and definitely important to encourage uh, patients in your practice to get boosted. Um, well, what's happening currently with boosters? Well, the FDA in the United States uh, have stated that the, and plan for the next round of COVID booster shots uh, to target XBB. Um, so the XBB variant, so update, updated from the, um, the current vaccine, which is to be a 4-5. Uh, for Pfizer, Moderna. And they're also recommending that 
that they be monovalent. So uh, no ancestral strain anymore in the vaccines. The vaccines are XBB only. Um, and so uh, they actually have the, um, the chosen, they, the XBB variant that they chose, which is XBB 1.5, uh, and they've developed a, a, a monovalent vaccine. So Pfizer, Moderna, and Novavax have all developed a, a monovalent XBB vaccine. And they're currently seeking FDA approval for these vaccines. Um, now, they've, they've done some tests uh, of the activity of the um, current the new vaccines that are being approved to the new ERIS and FL.1.5, uh, the new, new uh, variants. Uh, and overall, the spike protein is similar to XBB 1.5, and there is um, in vivo activity uh, against these uh, with the new, um, new, new uh, variant-specific vaccines. So although it's not a perfect match, these do seem to uh, continue to have activity uh, and uh, are almost certainly better than the previous vaccines in terms of targeting uh, iris if iris becomes a predominant um, uh, in Australia. Um, these would be, uh, would be preferential. Now, in the U.S., um, these vaccines are likely to be rolled out in um, September, um, so the United States will have access to updated vaccines in that time interval. Uh, now, it's important to note that uh, um, the end of the public health emergency in the United States may actually slow approvals for updated boosters in the future. So it may be more difficult to get uh, as rapid approval in the United States um, to various boosters uh, because um, uh, it, it, they don't have the same regulatory um, impetus uh, because of the, the um, change in designation of COVID, um, but hopefully uh, we'll continue to have updated vaccines. Now, uh, in general, the vaccine companies uh, apply for FDA approval, um, so the U.S. huge market, and then apply to other markets. So currently they have submitted for approval in Europe and in the U.S., um, but there has no been no approval um, uh, no request for approval submitted uh, in Australia. So it's unclear when these will be available in Australia. So according to the City Morning Herald last night, uh, there's been no TGA application for approval. Uh, and of course, there needs to be an application before it can be approved. And there's currently no Otagi guidance about these updated vaccines. So I do not know when these will be available in Australia. And almost certainly, we will be having a lot of EG5 before we actually have updated vaccines um, to be able to give patients. Uh, and, uh, you know, also in the Sydney Morning Herald was this statement, uh, which I found very surprising. I'm sorry that I can't give you any further clarification because um, this is just new to me. But currently, um, the uh, health department uh, has told the Sydney Morning Herald that there are no recommendations for providing a second booster in 2023. Uh, and that people who have taken up the 2023 booster are well protected against severe disease from COVID-19. So this would not be consistent with the TAGI recommendations, which do recommend that you have a booster if you're more than six months from your last dose or your last infection. So I'm not sure if there's going to be a change in policy. Uh, I do think that this will leave us more vulnerable to, um, to COVID, particularly if we are, um, are exposed to new variants. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this is the current recommendation. It may well stem from the fact that so few people have been vaccinated, um, but I think this, um, this may actually uh, 
cause harm um, to those that are most at risk, so over 65 and those in uh, aged care and those with immunocompromise. So what about hybrid immunity? Um, and possibly some of this recommendation in terms of uh, not recommending an updated booster relates to the fact that such a high proportion of the population has actually had infection. And so the thinking is that hybrid immunity uh, will make us uh, more able to withstand future COVID infections. Um, well, we do have indications that hybrid immunity does result in stronger and more prolonged immunity than um, just vaccine or just COVID infection. Um, the, the question is how long uh, and how, um, how robust is that protection? Um, and the evidence is somewhat conflicting. Um, this is a uh, interesting study just published um, from um, Quebec in Canada, uh, and it's a test-negative population-based case control study. So basically they took people that presented with COVID-like symptoms, uh, and they uh, selected from this group cases who were hospitalized for um, COVID and compared, uh, who tested positive and were hospitalized, and compared them to controls who tested negative. Um, and this was in the BA4-5 period, and there were about 80,000 people included in this study. Um, and so what you can see is that um, when you look for individuals who had no previous infection, um, the more times they had been vaccinated, um, the stronger their, uh, their uh, protection was uh, against um, hospitalization. Uh, when you looked at people who had had a previous, uh, previous infection uh, and were vaccinated, um, they had even more robust, so they were very highly protected uh, against uh, developing, um, against having to be hospitalized for COVID-19. Um, when you looked and you separated out, uh, that was pre-Omicron infection. When you looked at BA1 or BA2 infection, similarly, those who had, uh, had both um, a previous infection as well as vaccination had uh, more protection against hospitalization. Now, we don't have uh, as much um, ability to look at long intervals uh, for individuals who had a BA2 infection because at, um, at the time of this study uh, there really wasn't a lot of time that had expired after BA2 infections. Um, as well, these would be individuals who had been primarily vaccinated with a uh, BA1, um, either uh, ancestral strain or a bivalent BA1 vaccine, because that was available at this time period in Canada. Um, so overall, uh, more robust immunity seen if people had both an infection and a um, uh, vaccination. As you can see over time, you have waning of the effectiveness against hospitalization, um, irrespective of how many doses uh, that you've received. Uh, and um, uh, after, um, after infection, uh, after vaccination, um, this appears to be better. So better sustained uh, uh, um, prevention of hospitalization uh, with this hybrid immunity. So when you're looking at the bivalent um, fourth dose, what you can see is that um, basically having a bivalent fourth dose is effective and it's considerably more effective uh, than if the fourth dose is monovalent. Again, indicating in the current era, we should be giving bivalent and not uh, monovalent um, boosters. Um, but also that, um, uh, that both COVID-naive individuals and individuals who've had a COVID infection benefit from this um, uh, repeat dosing with the bivalent uh, booster. Additionally, this is a, a, a Swedish a population 
based nested case control study. So it looks at deaths uh, from December of 2020 uh, through June of 2022. So a mixed uh, group of, um, uh, of uh, uh, variants. So you have alpha, you have delta, uh, you have Omicron, um, but looked at uh, the 1,440 deaths from, uh, from COVID and compared it to, to controls. Uh, which were almost 14,000 control, control individuals. And because they were looking over an extended period of time, they could look at time since, um, since infection as well as time since, um, since last vaccine dose. And you can see uh, in individuals who are vaccinated, over time there is a definite decline in infecti effectiveness of the vaccine uh, against death from COVID. Uh, over uh, time since last infection. Uh, you can also see that there is a decline in the effectiveness of the last infection in terms of preventing, um, uh, preventing uh, death from COVID. And importantly, when you look at the hybrid, when you look at individuals who had had an infection and had been vaccinated, if both were more than six months ago, um, you definitely had a decline in the effectiveness of um, of uh, against uh, um, uh, people dying from COVID. So the hybrid immunity isn't enough. So people remain uh, at more, higher risk than they need to be if they've been more than six months since an infection or since a booster, particularly uh, in individuals who are higher risk of dying. So this is something to consider when you're thinking about um, the patient presenting to you uh, in terms of their risk and uh, talking to them about uh, vaccines. Well, um, so we have many people who have not been vaccinated, who need to be vaccinated, specifically those over 65s, individuals who haven't had a vaccine or an infection for uh, more than six months. If we're facing new variants, I think it's important to focus on those individuals to make sure that they're protected. Um, what about antivirals? So that's our next line of defense. Um, so we know that the uh, scripts for PBS scripts for oral COVID-19 um, treatment uh, is low, but that's consistent with the fact that we are at the lowest, we are at a nadir for cases of COVID. So entirely appropriate that we have a relatively low um, um, prescribing of um, antivirals right now although this is still likely considerably lower than it could be in terms of preventing serious illness. Um, the, uh, at, uh, the TGA has expanded eligibility for Paxlovid, and this is recently, um, in July. Um, the, the increase has been to allow uh, those uh, 50 years of age or older with at least one risk factor for developing severe disease to have access to Paxlovid. So you don't have to have multiple comorbidities to have access to Paxlovid if you're 50 years of age or older. Those who are 70 years of age or older um, are eligible for Paxlovid, uh, irrespective of what symptoms they have. And for First Nations people, um, uh, age 30 or over, one risk factor for developing severe disease. So slight modification in terms of expanded eligibility um, to make it more in keeping with other countries where uh, younger individuals have access to the drug. Now, I did want to speak a little bit about molnupiravir today. Um, after the panoramic trial, so the so we know that uh, in the randomized trial of molnupiravir before uh, individuals were vaccinated, so the original trial demonstrating that molnupiravir was effective 
was in people who hadn't been vaccinated. So we're at substantial risk of having serious, uh, a serious impact from COVID. Uh, when you looked at a group that was at lower risk, so that's the panoramic trial, looked at a lower risk group uh, for having serious consequences of COVID. So they were vaccinated. A lot of them were younger and less sick than in the original trial. You actually did not show, demonstrate an effect of Paxlovid in this population. And so that led to a change in recommendations where, um, you know, Paxlovid was considered first line for um, for uh, patients who present with COVID, uh, and molnupiravir was only to be given in Australia for those that uh, could not um, could not take Paxlovid. Um, so that's where those recommendations come from. Uh, now, emerging evidence uh, from uh, observational studies from uh, the real world, looking at groups that are at higher risk of uh, serious consequences, consequences from COVID, you know, are more in keeping with the original randomized trial, showing that molnupiravir continues to be effective. So I'm just going to show you a couple of those. Um, so this uh, looks at uh, diabetic patients in Hong Kong. So it's a population-based cohort study from Hong Kong, um, looking at individuals who have diabetes and confirmed infection, uh, comparing those who received um, molnupiravir to uh, controls who did not, and those who received uh, um, Paxlovid to those that did not. So you can see from the two graphs um, that uh, you have different baseline risks of uh, the outcome, which is mortality or hospitalization. So you have higher risk in the molnupiravir group than in the Paxlovid group. But you can see that both had an impact, both had a substantial impact uh, with the uh, blue line uh, being the treated with antivirals as compared to the yellow line being treated, being not treated with any antivirals. So an impact of both of these. So when you drill down to the individual outcomes or when you look at the actual risk reduction related to treatment with oral antivirals, relatively similar between the two drugs uh, with uh, reductions in all-cause mortality or hospitalization um, in both of these medications. So this is what you see for uh, molnupiravir and here's what you see for Paxlovid. This is not a direct comparison, different, um, um, uh, different cohorts, um, but does indicate that both have a substantial impact on the outcomes that you want to prevent in your populations. Similarly, this is a, a group of uh, individuals uh, living in uh, nursing homes in Hong Kong uh, with uh, almost 15,000 patients who had COVID. Um, most of the people that were treated with an antiviral received molnupiravir. Uh, some received Paxlovid. Um, these were individuals treated uh, in February, March 2022 and hospitalized uh, and looked at hospitalization or inpatient progression to April 2022. So in the Om Omicron era, um, many of these patients would have been NOVID, so would never have had uh, a COVID uh, infection before. So as you can see, uh, uh, both uh, molnupiravir and Paxlovid, so essentially the use of antivirals uh, was associated with a reduced risk of hospitalization, so about having of the hospitalization. And there really didn't seem to be much difference in this study uh, with a relatively small number of Paxil Paxlovid uh, prescriptions. Um, there didn't seem to be much of a difference between um, the two drugs. Um, so uh, in some, in, in the observational studies, molnupiravir does appear to have a, a a good effect uh, in individuals who are higher risk. When you looked at progression within hospitals, um, actually uh, it does look like uh, molnupiravir, um, uh, again, both molnupiravir and Paxlovid did appear to improve uh, 
um, the progression uh, in hospitalization in patients who are hospitalized. Uh, and again, relatively similar um, to Paxlovid, uh, although um, uh, that's a small number of patients with Paxlovid treated in the study. So overall, Paxlovid does remain the drug of choice. In the randomized controlled trial of Paxlovid, it did appear to have a greater risk reduction than molnupiravir, although there's never been a real direct, there's never been a trial with a direct comparison between the two drugs. What we seem to see is in patients who have a real risk of um, serious consequences from COVID, um, molnupiravir does appear to be effective in observational studies and very similar effectiveness to the randomized trial, which was done uh, pre-vaccination. So molnupiravir does appear to be effective, but um, you know, I think the data still support Paxlovid remaining the drug of choice. Both antivirals, however, are challenging to administer to everyone who could benefit, and I think there is substantial underutilization of antivirals still um, because patients need to know this is an option. They also need to have access to testing. They have to have access to a physician and to be able to start their drug within five days. So you do have this uh, time period that you have to be treated within, which makes it quite challenging. Uh, and I think there's also been a, a complacency about, um, about COVID. Uh, and um, I do think we need to be prepared in the future if we do have a variant that has increased virulence um, to change the thinking in our patients so that they understand that you know if you get COVID and you're higher risk, this is your best, path best pathway um, to uh, improving your outcome. I think there's some important other considerations that are not part of the uh, recommendations, ATAGI recommendations, uh, but I think are important considerations for thinking about with your patients. So number one, NOVIDs do appear to be at higher risk of serious consequences, again, because they lack hybrid immunity. Um, so people who have not had COVID in the past do seem to be at higher risk of severe outcomes when they develop COVID. So these are people that it's worth thinking about um, uh, as, a, as, um, as having an increased uh, benefit from potential benefit from antivirals. So thinking about making sure those folks have access to these is important. And then remember from the, um, from the, the Swedish study, as length of time from vaccination or infection increases, your risk of serious uh, outcomes, particularly critical illness, hospitalization, are going to increase. So that's another population that's particularly important for antivirals. And that's a significant number of Australians who have been uh, at least six months from vaccination or infection. So again, if new variants come that are problematic, um, then uh, that's a really important group to uh, think about uh, making sure they have access to antivirals. So finally, we're kind of left uh, again in this limbo where we don't really have a great way of tracking um, tracking COVID, uh, particularly in, in the press uh, or what's talked about by governments, uh, other than waiting for hospitalizations. And as we know, hospitalizations are a lagging indicator. So basically, we don't know what's happening with COVID until we're two or three weeks down the track. Uh, and so I'm just going to talk about a couple of ways, easy ways for you to keep track of what's going on with COVID, um, just to know what you're in for, what, to prepare yourself, uh, and to have some sense of what you maybe should be uh, recommending to your patients in terms of you know those people who are are still concerned and want to protect themselves uh, with um, 
uh, with things like masking or uh, ventilation, when you should be telling them to be really concerned, when you should tell them that perhaps now is the time they can, they can relax a bit more. So for my, me myself, you know, I still wear masks uh, when I uh, perceive there to be a higher risk. So right now I'm feeling kind of comfortable enough to take my mask off when I'm sitting with people in an enclosed room. Um, but uh, if uh, our new variants start to take off, if we start to be, once we start to be in another uh, ascending peak, um, which I will be following, uh, then I may be putting my mask back on. So I think there is a potential to be able to talk to your patients about um, doing maneuvers to, uh, to protect themselves from transmission when transmission is higher. So how do I track it? Um, the first thing I do is I go on the um, health.gov.au uh, website to track outbreaks in aged care. So there still is a substantial amount of testing done in aged care, much more than in the general population. So this is one way, it's a bellwether to see um, what, what's happening in the population in terms of aged care. So there's both track uh, outbreaks in residents as well as outbreaks in staff. So it gives you an idea of what's going on in the, um, in the population. It definitely tracks population spread. Um, and uh, right now it's going to give you a much, much quicker uh, understanding of when um, transmission has increased um, than will cases which, which are not well reported anymore. The second is wastewater detection, and this is from uh, New South Wales, which has a weekly report for wastewater detection. It's in four regions within uh, New South Wales, so it doesn't give you a picture necessarily in your region, but is a, a good um, gives you a good snapshot of where uh, where we're at generally in Australia. Um, and um, so you can see when the wastewater starts to increase in terms of the amount of COVID in the wastewater, um, it's a sign that, uh, that transmission is starting to increase um, and it would be um, reasonable for uh, patients that your, your patients that are particularly concerned to start uh, thinking about more precautions. Again, as you see from here, uh, as of last week, in most areas, uh, in two areas, we're at a low, uh, and another two we're starting to increase. So we may have reached the nadir in terms of um, uh, the, uh, the uh, COVID-19 in circulation, we may be starting to increase. This is also a way that uh, uh, that they can track for new variants. Um, and New South Wales has a great, um, it publishes uh, the prevalence of the various uh, variants, uh, really excellent in terms of being able to track what's going on when uh, in terms of what's in circulation uh, in Australia. So that's something I definitely will be looking at um, in, the, in the foreseeable future um, to track what's happening uh, with Iris and what's track happening with um, the, uh, the newest variant um, that we're particularly concerned about. So a, a lot to absorb there. Overall good news in terms of being at the lowest point in terms of hospitalizations and deaths since the Omicron uh, era, since trans widespread transmission occurred in Australia. Uh, we um, uh, have a problem with boosters in terms of getting all the uh, patients in um, Australia that would benefit from boost, uh, boosters, getting them boosted. We have a problem with boosters in terms of uh, not knowing when uh, the most up-to-date booster will be available in Australia. Any booster is better than no booster, but it would be ideal for us to get more updated boosters as quickly as possible in Australia. Um, we, uh, we know that hybrid immunity helps, but hybrid immunity isn't the whole answer, particularly for individuals that are at higher risk. 
Uh, and we have antivirals, both seem to be, both appear to be effective uh, in patients that are higher risk, and we know we're not using them as much as we should in Australia. Really important, particularly in those that uh, have, uh, have a high risk of, uh, have a lot of comorbidities, NOVIDs, uh, and people who've been more than six months from a booster or infection to make sure we get them access to an antiviral. Paxlovid still preferred over molnupiravir, but again, molnupiravir does appear to be effective. And then, you know, tracking the outbreak um, uh, will help you um, counsel patients in terms of what the baseline risk is and what potentially, um, what precautions they potentially should take uh, should they so wish. So with that, um, uh, thank you very much for your attention uh, and uh, keep safe. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.